Support for WERU comes from the Abbey Museum, Maine's first Smithsonian affiliate, founded in 1928 at Sirdemon Spring in Acadia National Park, and open year-round in downtown Bar Harbor with two locations and one mission to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki nations with every visit. More information at abbeymuseum.org. It's just a few seconds before 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, our guests are Sherry Mitchell, uh, who's an attorney, a Penobscot Nation tribal member, and director of the Land Peace Foundation. Uh, we also have Maria Girard, who uh, is sometimes my co-host. <laughs> Uh, and uh, she's uh, a native rights activist, environmental activist, and a Penobscot Nation tribal member. So welcome to the show, Sherry and Maria. Thanks. Thank you for having us, Donna. Um, today we're going to talk about um, a subject that uh, was brought to my attention, um, well, maybe it was last week. I think it might have been last week. Um, but it had to do with uh, the land claims. Uh, and I thought, well, maybe we should uh, look at some of that uh, land claims history. Um, the, the environment back in the, the 70s, the late 70s, when uh, the land claims was being negotiated and there were a lot of uh, issues going on and, and there were a lot of uh, fear-mongering and, and talking. Uh, but I, I think before we... we I'll just go on. I will say that, uh, I'll, let me just lay the groundwork first. Um, I'm, I'm going to read an excerpt from the uh, Wabanaki uh, resources book. It's called uh, The Wabanakis of Maine and the Maritimes. And uh, it's on page A21. And I think it frames what we're going to talk about uh, fairly well. And it starts out with uh, the state's treatment of Indians was paternalistic, and the legislature assumed the authority to make whatever decisions it thought necessary at any given time. Even the state courts fostered this attitude. In 1842, for instance, the highest court in Maine stated that, and I quote, imbecility on their, the Indians part, and the dictates of humanity on ours have necessarily prescribed to them their subjugation to our paternal control in disregard of some, at least of abstract principles, of the right of man, end of quote. It goes on to say, uh, people who had once lived in abundance were now impoverished, and wherever they went in the larger society, they faced prejudice, discrimination, and injustice. Indians were lazy, it was said, yet their livelihood had been taken from them, they lived on welfare, it was said, yet the so-called assistance given to them was in fact income from products taken from their land, hay and timber, or income from the 
rent or lease of their land. So in that sort of environment, uh, that was that was what was going on in in the late 1970s when the tribes brought this land claims uh, issue forward, and um, a lot of that reason was because they were desperate and in poverty. So uh, Maria, tell us about uh, that time in the 70s. Sure, um, I did some research when. Um I was finishing my, my master's program at the University of Maine on the Maine Indian land claims. And um, I still continue to do research to this day because it's just so complex an issue. Um, and there's always more things to learn. But um, one of my focus um, in my thesis was the atmosphere in which we were um, looking to find justice. And so um, anyone who has any familiarity with the Maine Indian um, claim Settlement Act will readily acknowledge that the settlement is riddled with ambiguities and um, subjecting it to continual scrutiny and misinterpretation. And um, the attention given during the formative years from 1970 to 1980 uh, to the Maine Indian land claims by media may have fueled uh, misinterpretations and skewed the public opinion regarding the claim's intent. Um, like you said, we were living in um, very impoverished times. Uh, the main Indian land claims was seen as the only venue to lift ourselves up out of this impoverished um, environment in which we were living, um, just loaded with racial hostilities. And so, and it, it was interesting because um, as I was doing my research and examining uh, a multitude of mainstream media um, outlets, in Maine during the 1970s, um, it was more fear-mongering than anything, and you never saw the tribe's voice represented in any of those newspaper articles. Um, People described the 1970s as being um, a a period of overt racial hostilities. And um, I brought some of the newspaper articles um, with me that highlight um, this sort of fear campaign that was taking place um, against the tribes at that time and I would really say uh, really inhibited their ability to to have a fair trial. And so, um, you know, the headline January 12th of 1977 says, The Interior Urges Land Claim in Indian Suit. And then a week later, there's a headline in the Bangor Daily News that says, Non-Indians Eviction Urged in State Area. And nowhere in these um, articles did they ask the tribes if any of this were true. As a matter of fact, um, it says in one of the articles that this information comes from a reliable source, um, Um, a reliable source who had submitted information to the Attorney General's office. And so um, that's where the the information was coming from. And then as citizens of Maine woke up and read these terrifying headlines, which weren't even true, um, they set about in their own media campaign and educating one another on different aspects of their understandings of um, tribal history. So they were scared to death 
that they were going to lose their homes. Absolutely. Where the family had been for some even um, a couple of generations, maybe maybe 100 years they had a homestead. And uh, And, um, I recently um, was able to learn about some of the archives, uh, the Muskie archives, for example, are at Bates College, and there's a whole, there's a whole packet of these letters that were written to Muskie during that time. And some of them were even um, letters penned by children in crayon asking them, uh, asking Muskie to please not let the Indians steal their homes. Now how sad is that to indoctrinate your children at such an early age to start writing these letters and, f- and putting the fear in them, children, who would probably be in their 40s now <laughs> yeah it was pretty disturbing to um, come across but not only that i think that uh, there was also uh, a view that uh, they had already you know they didn't owe the the tribes anything right. uh, that they had every right to uh, have this land right well here's one letter i can read uh, just to set the the taste <laughs> for um, what was being said in the newspapers. And this is a letter to the editor that was written in 1977. To the editor, the lead article in your January 17th edition regarding the possible eviction of 350,000 Maine residents is very serious business. We residents of northern and eastern Maine had better snap out of our slumber and consider what counteraction should be taken. I have watched the Maine Indians all my life as they received more and more goodies from the public coffers. The taxpayer builds them houses, recreation center, uh, centers, sewage treatment facilities and businesses. The taxpayer furnishes them all the necessities and many of the luxuries of life, including free legal services with which to gather in more goodies. All of this because of some strange guilt-ridden theory that we somehow owe something to these people. So that's one example of the letters to the editors that that came out during that time and of course what you just read to us in the beginning from the resource book uh, explains this appearance of um, receiving more and more goodies from the public coffers it wasn't a handout from the public coffers it was the doling out of their own resources by the state government as they saw fit for lands which they illegally took from them so There's a greater understanding behind a lot uh, that comes out, and um, none of these things came to bear. Indians weren't out to steal any land. They never said they were going to. And um, it's interesting to see how this Mm -hmm. still plays out today. Yeah, and I've been, there's a bunch of letters also in the same book that I, in the Wabanaki, uh, Webinaki's a man in the Maritimes, and there's a couple little uh, short letters to the editor, which I think make the point. Uh, here's one that says, all this talk about Indians have been done uh, in injustice and needing recompense. It's the non-Indians who are the victims, if anybody is. <laughs> it's now costing the U.S. taxpayers $10,000 per year uh, per Indian family. Uh, the Indians get free medical, hospital, dental, and optical care. They can hunt or fish anywhere. 
no bag limit or, or license. <laughs> they get wells drilled and sanitary facilities installed on ranches, farms, and homes away from municipal facilities, all free. They even may get job preference. Some ads read, tribal members only need apply. So rejoice. The Indians are doing okay. I only wish we had it so good. Main Sunday Telegram, uh, March 5th, 1978. Donna, this is one of my favorite ones. And this is just a piece of, and I have a whole collection of these letters to the editors um, over the, the period of the land claims. And this one uh, is entitled The Enemy Within, from a person from Jonesport. And at the bottom of, of this letter to the editor, I won't read the whole thing because it's quite long, but it says... I love the Indians, always have admired them because they have a wonderful history and heritage. But when they come up with a deed signed by Jesus Christ, I would say that they have good title to this land. Otherwise, some of us plan to still live here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and along those lines, here's another one. Uh, we won't go on with these for, for much longer. But Although I we just, do have fun I, reading them. <laughs> I, uh, I just want to make the point here. Uh, it's titled... God-given deeds, question mark. Um, I was amazed and shocked to read a letter in the telegram which said, Maine and its citizens confiscated and stole 20 million acres of land from the Abenakis and didn't pay a penny for most of it. In doing just a small amount of genealogical research, I find the early white settlers received land grants and payment for military service while others paid in English money for their grants. In succeeding years of occupation, we have paid dearly to hold our homes and real estate. Have the Indians paid likewise? That raises the question. If the Abenakis own 20 million acres in Maine, where are their title deeds? From whom did they acquire the land, and how much did they pay for it? Or did they confiscate and steal it? Most civilized people would agree civilized. that exactly civilized <laughs> uh, would agree that with ownership of land and property goes responsibility. The payment of taxes, building roads, schools, churches, and other improvements for the betterment of society. Did the Indians assume any of these duties? Obviously not, being an indigenous race and migratory race. As to title deeds, I would suggest these were passed out, passed on to our forefathers from higher authority than man with a divine commission to be fruitful and multiply and become a great nation. The original deeds are in the Bible. The land of America, including Maine, was bequeathed to the white colonizers that they might be a blessing to other families on earth. We have colonized and built been greatly blessed and in turn have been blessing to other races. Therefore, for the sake of brevity and in compliance with our heritage from above, let's not give up our birthright to the Indians or anyone else. Letter to the editor, Kennebec Journal, March 26, 1978. Well, I'm dying to jump in here. I know you are. I can see you squirming <laughs> in your chair. <laughs> I'm over here doing a some yoga to try to calm myself down. Um, I think that that's really interesting because that goes back to the whole issue of doctrine of discovery. 
where the United States claimed title to the lands owned by the Indian people based on this uh, series of papal bulls and um, in direct violation of the United States Constitution's requirement of separation of church and state. And so the title that is claimed to Indian lands is based on uh, a faulty legal doctrine that actually issued from the Catholic Church. And so you understand that that mindset has traveled down um, where they actually um, had claimed that they had a right to any land that was owned by non-Christian people and a right to enslave those people and to uh, kill them and to uh, rape and pillage them, you know, that those, um, those doctrines of the early Roman Catholic Church were the founding um, principles upon which Indian land title is based. And that's standing law today. It's still referred to that it goes back to the doctrine of discovery. And a lot of people don't understand that history. But you understand that there is still this mentality of conquest that permeates the issue around indigenous rights, that we have the conquistador's right to take whatever we can from you by force. And there is no other human right or value assigned to um, their understanding of that right. And to me, that's the grossest um, misuse of religious doctrine that's ever existed. And if you want to talk about taking the Lord's name in vain, what greater way to do that than to use the name of God to subjugate, to murder, and to steal from a whole race of people? Yeah, absolutely. Anything to add to that, Maria? Well, when Sherry's talking about the um, the doctrine of Christian discovery, I, I just wanted to reference a, a great book by um, Walter Echohawk in the courts of the conquerors and he does a great job talking about the doctrine of christian discovery and how it plays out in um, american uh, legal venues today and how um, you know those first legal venues that really outlined the relationship between the united states and the um, the native nations within the boundaries of the uh, united states you know, some of those are, are faulty. Um, you know, Justice Marshall never would have been allowed to hear those sorts of um, cases in today's courts because of um, ethical restrictions. You know, his, his family were huge landowners, and they sought to benefit from his um, decision in these right in these venues and so it was very unethical for him to even make those decisions decisions and, and place those as precedent in, in Indian law. I'd like to read this quote from the 1452 um, papal bull issued by Pope Nicholas V um, to Alfonso V of Portugal. It's called uh, the papal bull Dum de Versus, which it says that it provides King Alfonso the right to capture, vanquish, and subdue the Saracens, pagans, and other enemies to Christ, to put them into perpetual slavery, and to take all their possessions and property. And so, you know, having that um, that language is not very different from the language that we're hearing in regard to these arguments today. And how sad is it that in 
all of this time, we haven't traveled any further than that right. in regard to the evolution of our thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any more? Uh... Well, I'm just thinking how, um, you know, we talk about history, we talk about the land claims, um, the, the fear-mongering that happened in the newspapers, none of which materialized. Um, and then thinking about the latest letter that came out. And, and we're coming to that in a minute okay. here. I won't steal your thunder then. But <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Maria. <laughs> but, um, you know, this, the consequences of that sort of fear-mongering is very, very serious to, to tribal peoples. And um, I did a lot of, um, well, not a lot, I did a few presentations around the land claims in the past, um, in, in particularly big venues, and when I would talk about um, the treatment in, during the 1970s of Native people where, um, you know, Indian children were beaten up in school, and there was a resurgence of the, resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan, um, and all of these things to instill fear in the, in the public, um, that had some really serious consequences to, to tribal people. And every time I would do these talks, um, somebody always came up to me and had a personal story to share about those times. You know, somebody being shot, um, uh, people being beat up at school. And uh, I actually moved from Indian Island in the mid-1970s during the height of the land claims. Of course, I was a kid, and I didn't really realize the timing of it all. But when I moved, um, you know, off the reservation and into, um, you know, a community in Maine and then, you know, dared to say where I came from, man, I didn't, I didn't admit to that again for a very long time because of the treatment that I received. And, you know, we were all just kids, but the kids were quick to tell me everything that they had learned about uh, Indian people in their homes. And it was just, you know, it just did not compute with my reality. And the kids were saying, you know, you know my dad said that, all the Indians are, you know, lazy welfare bums and alcoholics looking for a handout and all these horrible stereotypes. And I was just like, wow. <laughs> and I didn't even dare to admit to being Penobscot again for years after that. Uh, it just floored me. Well, that makes sense with the, the t uh, uh, letter that you were, the letters that you were reading when you mentioned children were sending in these oh, letters yes. written in Crayon that they had been indoctrinated to have these beliefs about Indian people. Yeah and that, you know, they're now the ones that are having children. And so these, you know, racist attitudes get handed down through the generations. And until there's an effort to really create uh, some type of accurate education around the reality here, you know, nobody's homes got stolen. You know, none of these things actually happened. This is all fabrication mm -hmm. that, um, you know, these ideas are going to continue. And I think that that, again, brings us back to, um, you know, the letter that we're going to be discussing shortly, that there's a, a whole, um, you know, fabrication of mythology that is completely inaccurate, created out of whole cloth. You know, I mean, it's just, there's just very little truth in in the things that are being said and being purported regarding the tribes in the media today. Yeah. Well, I think it's time we discuss this infamous letter. Um, and uh, I'm going to read it so you all know what we're talking about here. And uh, it was uh, an uh, editorial in the Bangor Daily News on August 6th, 
2014. And the title was Role Reversal, How the Penobscot Nation is Suing Maine and Has the Upper Hand. And it's by Matt Manahan. And it's special to the Bangor Daily News. And it, it, uh, it reads, If you lived in Maine in 1980, then you remember that after a huge controversy, the state of Maine entered into a historic settlement resolving Indian claims to ownership of more than half the state in return for extinguishing all Aboriginal title and claims. The Indians received, among other things, $81.5 million, about $235 million in 2014 dollars. The, law, the laws memorializing the settlement identified the Penobscot Nation as specific islands in the Penobscot River and set up a unique state-tribe relationship with the main tribes, unlike Indians in other states subject to state laws and ju jurisdiction. Or so we thought. According to the Penobscot Nation, the settlement acts from both state and federal law apparently didn't settle either the boundaries of its reservation or what or whom it can regulate. The Penobscots now claim the reservation includes at least the entire 60-mile main stem of the Penobscot River, from Indian Island northward to Medway, and claim they can regulate Indian and non-Indian use of the river and many of its tributaries and branches. Penobscot Nation is pursuing this position through a lawsuit pending against the state of Maine in federal court and in water quality standards the Penobscot Nation has proposed for those waterways. According to the Penobscots, the settlement didn't settle things at all. Here's the best part. You are paying for the Penobscot Nation to do this. Your federal dollars fund their pursuit of these claims to unravel the settlement acts you previously paid for in 1980. The federal government has given the tribe the money to sue the state to the tune of about 146000 so far. To add to that, the tribe recently requested 170000 more from the Federal Bureau of Indian Affairs to cover legal expenses. The exact amount the tribe has received to date is unclear because the federal government is not forthcoming with this kind of information or revealing any other communications it has with Maine Indian tribes. The state has for years unsuccessfully been pursuing Freedom of Information Act claims. One tidbit that eventually was revealed is the fact that the federal government and the Penobscot Passamaquoddy tribes have entered into secret pacts. <laughs> <laughs> secret, <laughs> secret from among others, the state to support these tribes' positions. In that vein, aside from this direct funding of the Penobscot's lawsuit against the state to unravel the settlement acts, your federal dollars are also paying for the federal government to act as a party in supporting the tribe's position in the pending litigation, which includes paying for a professor's testimony as to what was in the minds of the Penobscots when they entered into treaties in the 18th century, which they say is somehow relevant because apparently the 1980 Settlement Acts don't count. What does it mean for you if the Penobscots prevail? They will regulate your hunting, trapping, and fishing on the river. 
they will regulate municipal and other discharges into the river and some of its branches and tributaries. Even though such discharges are already carefully controlled, carefully controlled by the state and federal governments. If you live in a town that borders the river and thought your, to- your town ran to the middle of the river in accordance with Maine law, surprise! If you paddle, fish, or otherwise use the Penobscot River in any way, you will now confront a new regulator telling you what you can or can't do and how much it will cost you to do it. And unlike state regulators, the Penobscots won't even be obliged to listen to your concerns about the impact of their regulations. You will have no control or influence over these regulations. The Penobscots have even announced they intend to close the river to trapping and require a permit to access the river for any reason, making it their exclusive domain. We represent a coalition of municipalities and other entities that have state and federal permits to use the river. As towns and companies with thin profit margins, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) the coalition members don't have the endless federal resources the Penobscot Nation has, but they see the critical issues at stake here, issues we all thought were resolved decades ago. The state attorney general alone is battling against all the resources of the federal government and she needs all the support she can get. There's no question the history of the treatment of Indians in this country includes tragic episodes of overwhelming resources used to renege on commitments previously made. It's ironic the same scenario is happening again with roles reversed. Okay, it's the end of that, and it's by Matt Manahan, and at the bottom it says, the chair of the Environmental and Land Use Practice Group of Pierce Atwood LLP. He is a former member of the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission. So, who wants to jump in on this one? Oh, man. Oh, my goodness. That's just shameful. It is shameful. (laughs) Should uh, should I let Maria go first? Because I I know, Sherry, (laughs) you're just loaded. So, go ahead, Maria. Well, I did respond to this... um, this special to the BDN. I did write my own um, letter to the editor, which was um, which was uh, in the August fifteenth BDN, and I could read that. There's so many areas in here to to address, and it was difficult in the um, letter to the editor because you only got 250 words. So um, this is my response to um, Manahan's special. The August 6th BDN op-ed role reversal, how the Penobscot Nation is suing Maine and has the upper hand, is reminiscent of the fear-mongering that took place throughout the Indian land claims era from 1970 to 1980 when the message was, the Indians are going to steal your homes. The author, who happens to be the attorney representing the intervening towns and polluting industries in the Penobscot Nation versus Mills case, falls short in capturing the depth and complexity of this 194-year-old history between the Penobscot Indians and the state government. Through the main Indian land claims, the tribes were seeking justice and restitution for territory that had been illegally taken from them, as well as assurances that it would not happen again. Instead, the land claims has become the holy canon for all issues Indian, 
and the threat of territorial loss continues. Since 1980, both state and tribal government officials have acknowledged numerous problems and ambiguities in the land claims settlement agreement. However, it continues to be used as a tool to further oppress Penobscot people. The agreement has been broken since 1980. Perhaps this is why the 1980 Maine Indian Claims Settlement Act has been nicknamed the 1980 Attorney's Employment Act. Okay. Sherry? Well, where do we begin? Um, <laughs> I do have a question, though. I don't know if I want to throw you off, but you can answer this at the beginning or at the end. Okay. Um, my first impression when I read this letter was that this person here was trying to do, you know, to fear monger like they did back in the in the early the late seventies, I mean, in, in early eighties. So I'm wondering if there's any sort of ethical uh, consequences that an attorney faces when they do that. Well, my that was going to be my first point of discussion okay. is that there are so many. Um, things here that are going on that are completely unethical. Not only is um, Mr. Menahan failing to disclose his connection to this case, he's writing as though he's a neutral party, as though he is, you know, um, someone who is concerned with the environment. Um, and none of those things um, are, are honest. Um, you know, he is... A party to this case and he never once discloses that fact he claims that he was a member of the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission mm -hmm. um, but he fails to disclose the fact that he is the only person in the history of the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission who was involuntarily removed from that commission mm -hmm. um, and so it really calls into question what is his real underlying agenda here. And as an attorney, doesn't he have an ethical obligation to present the facts of a case that he is a party to accurately to the public, which he's failed to do on many counts here? Um, one of the things um, that is most concerning is where he says that the tribe, let me see if I can find it here, um, that the tribes have announced... Mm -hmm. The Where closure of the river? Yeah, have announced, uh, let's see. The Penobscots have even announced they intend to close the river to trapping and require a permit to access the rivers for any reason, making it their exclusive domain. It is blatantly untrue. The tribe has never once announced that they intend to close the river to trapping and require a permit to access the river for any reason. It's a bold-faced lie. Mm -hmm. And as an attorney, he has an ethical obligation to tell the truth. You can't fabricate stories out of whole cloth and present them to the public as truth. And that's exactly what he's doing here with this article. He also talks about secrecy. The greatest secrecy involved in this article is his position and his connection to this case. The tribe has been holding public hearings. He says that um, the Penobscots don't have any obligation to listen to your concerns about the impacts of their regulations, and you'll have no control or influence over those regulations. On the day that this article was released in the Bangor Daily News, the tribe was holding a public hearing that was attended by citizens who reside up and down the Penobscot River. 
who all live in close proximity to the river and who all were voicing um, their support of the tribe in this uh, endeavor because they recognize, having lived on the Penobscot River for decades, that since the tribe has been involved in cleanup activities along the river and um, working to restore the, the river to its original state, that their lives have improved that there is an increase in uh, native species of fish that have returned to that area of the river, that the river is now open to greater um, sports and recreation activity, that people aren't as concerned about contamination of the fish and the wildlife that live in and along the river as they once were. So it has improved the condition of life for residents along the river. The only real concern here is the ability of industry to be able to dump toxins into the river unchecked. And that's the position that Mr. Manahan is representing. And he does not disclose the fact that that is the position that he is representing um, in this case. And so I think that there are a lot of ethical issues um, that are at play here in regard to this this article. So, um, and that only begins, um, you know, that only begins the discussion. Um, there are things that he says in this letter that I feel the need to address. Um, one of those things is this issue of your federal tax dollars are also paying you know, for the federal government to act as, a, act as a party in supporting the tribe's position in the pending litigation. Um, we're all taxpayers. We pay taxes, both federal and state taxes. Um, all tribal members pay employment tax. They pay um, main state taxes on the reservation. Our fee lands are taxed. Uh, 80% of tribal members live off the reservation. So for him to be acting as though uh, the non uh, Native people are somehow subsidizing the tribe's position is ludicrous. Not only that, but if you look at the history of this type of thing, um, not only in Maine, but across the country and across uh, the Americas, really, industry has been taking billions and billions of dollars worth of resources off from indigenous lands for decades. And if the truth be told, it's really those tribal lands that um, these entities have forced their way onto um, that are subsidizing industry. And, you know, to make these comments like the general population is somehow subsidizing Indian people is blatantly untrue and it's offensive. Um, when the resources that are being harvested from these tribal lands are, in fact, the very same resources that industry is using now to make this preemptive strike against tribal land and water rights. And this isn't something that's happening just in Maine. This is something that's happening across the country. Um, as we're moving into this age of fracking and tar sands, where the um, use of fresh water is um, really vital to their ability to be able to keep this completely destructive industry afloat. Um, the issue of water rights has become uh, very significant. And so this isn't just happening here. Like I said, anywhere where industry is coming up against a base of tribal land and water rights, they're creating scenarios where there's a preemptive strike against the tribe. The tribe is not just out of the blue 
um, standing up in order to protect the water. Um, when there was a meeting that occurred um, right after the Line 9 from the west to east um, pipeline through Canada was approved in Canada where Governor LePage met with um, representatives of the Canadian government and representatives of um, the oil and gas industry. And at that time, um, they discussed the possibility of bringing these activities into Maine. Very shortly after that, the Attorney General wrote an opinion stating that the tribe did not have these rights. When it had been the position of the state of Maine um, consistently that the tribe had um, significant rights to their waterways. This was a completely new position for the state of Maine. Um, and so the tribe didn't just wake up one day and say, we're going to make a stand for our water rights. This is in response to a preemptive strike that had been made against the tribes by the state of Maine and by industry. And none of those facts are disclosed in any of this stuff that's being placed out into the media. And I think that it's really important for people to understand um, that this is what's happening. And so there's there's this um, this quote by Felix Cohen that I think is is relevant today. Um, it's just as relevant today as it was back in the 1930s. Um, Felix Cohen was the primary legal architect of the Indian New Deal, um, which is a federal policy that sought to strengthen tribal governments and reduce federal domination of tribes. And he became the chief of the Indian Law Survey, where he compiled all the federal laws and treaties regarding American Indians. And one of the things that Felix Cohen talked about was about this treatment of Indian people. And he said, like the miner's canary, the Indian marks the shifts from fresh air to poisonous gas in our political atmosphere. And our treatment of Indians marks the rise and fall in our democratic faith. What happens to the Indians will eventually happen to us all. And so when Mr. Manahan asks you, you know, at the end of his article, you know, um, about what what your position is um, in regard to the tribes having some type of regulatory right over the Penobscot River, I think that's a question that everybody should strongly consider. Um, because when industry had total control over the Penobscot River, when children swam in it, they got sores on their skin. The fish were completely unedible. The animals that lived along those waterways were completely contaminated with toxins. And so do we want to have industry continue to have the authority to have an unchecked um, access to dumping toxins into our waterways? Water is a very vital and precious resource that is diminishing daily across the planet. Um, and if we look at the history of the treatment of Indian people and the subjugation of their rights, you know, their human rights, their land rights, their water rights, these things are now leaking out into the commons. You see communities all over the country that are battling the same types of issues that Indian people have been battling for the last century, where their land rights are being infringed upon by industry, where they are um, having their waterways and their communities completely saturated with toxins um, from industry. And if you're really thinking about 
um, what's going on across the country, across, you know, the world right now, the issue of indigenous land rights is no longer an issue that is central only to Native peoples. That this is, uh, you know, we've reached a nexus point where Indian land rights, water rights, environmental justice, and human survival all collide. And that everybody is going to be impacted by these things. Everybody that lives up and down the Penobscot River is going to be greatly impacted if industry is allowed to continue dumping toxins into the river unchecked. Um, There has been a decrease in regulation um, and systematic deregulation of waterways across the country to pave the way for industry to come through with these really harmful and destructive practices. And that's something that every citizen has a vested interest in paying attention to because it will impact your community. It will impact the future of your children. And so having the tribe who has consistently shown that they are responsible enough to be able to uh, maintain, preserve, and restore the waterways in the Penobscot River, not only for tribal members, but for all citizens that live up and down that river and for the generations yet to come, is really a much safer and saner bet for the citizens of Maine than allowing industry to continue moving through unchecked. Yeah, that's, you know, at the public hearing, uh, there was there were comments from uh, non-natives from surrounding communities who said, you know, we've we've reviewed these these new uh, rules that you have for water quality, and we are really impressed with those. And as a matter of fact, we think they're even uh, better than what the state has. And we really trust you uh, because you live here and the water is surrounding you uh, and uh, it supports you with your culture. Uh, and we know that we, can, that we can depend on you defending this river uh, and 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 the other thing too is you know if, if that water is is protected, then it's not only us that benefits; it's all of those communities along the river. Right. right. So I wanted to talk a little bit about this piece where he's talking about the federal tax dollars. Um, well, first of all, let me just back up real quick um, and say that this um, special does not mention how we got into this case to begin with how uh, right. a department from state government sent a letter to right. tribal chief and council basically challenging our understanding of the scope of our reservation and then threatening us, saying, basically, if you don't agree, then we're going to have to go to court. So this is how this all started. So um, Mainers might be wondering why all of a sudden in 2012 did the state of Maine find that it was so imperative to make claim over the river. Mm-hmm. And the federal government is exercising its trust responsibility. Our territory is threatened. And so the federal government has a trust responsibility to back us up when our territory is threatened. Right. That's what's happening. And my question is, how much money has Maine, the state of Maine, spent fighting the Indians? We've been in litigation about 13 times over the land claims. We've acknowledged that the land claims is broken, that it's a mess, but they still continue to use it against us. So there's there's just so, so many ways to respond to this letter, and it's just, you know, I read it, 
And I say, this is just shameful. It really is. And the timing of it coming out the afternoon of the Penobscot's water quality standards, I was really worried, thinking like, you know, all these people were going to show up and just be nasty. But that didn't happen. (laughs) Like Donna said, um, so many people showed up in strong support of the tribe. And, you know, we talk a lot about how the time that we're in with this um, river case is so similar to the land claims that we can find these similarities. Um, But one important difference is that um, many, 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 many Mainers have been properly educated and that they know their history now and that they understand what's going on. And they're standing up with us. We have thousands of allies now. We're not in this by ourselves anymore like we were back in the 1980s. And so that feels really hopeful and promising. Sure. I mean, it's easy for someone to jump in and get people all riled up, Mm -hmm. especially if we don't have a voice. Right. Well, we got a voice now and we're using it. Absolutely. I think that one of the things that um, struck me is I did a had the opportunity to do a great deal of research. I worked in the solicitor's office at the United States Department of Interior, and there are a lot of access to documentation that you know you don't ordinarily see. and And there were some things that I I looked up because I I questioned you know what the position was of the people at that time. And um, when the General Allotment Act was being argued before Congress, John Collier, who was then the Commissioner of Indian Affairs, explained to Congress that. Um, and essentially, the General Allotment Act was a, a means to take possession of tribal lands. Um, and he explained to Congress that, and this is a quote, this act was an indirect method to peacefully, under the form of law, take away the land that we were determined to take away, but did not want to take openly by breaking treaties. And so when you look at the attempt of the main attorney general in that letter, um, you know, kind of discounting the rights of the tribes to their waterways. This, again, is, um, you know, an indirect or direct method to take away, using the guise of law, um, the rights that the tribes have to their waterways um, in a way that doesn't, um, you know, appear that they're doing it unlawfully or by force. And so this is, uh, you know, what we call... Um, kind of a fabrication. It's a misuse of the law, really, in my opinion, where they're using the law to um, systematically take away the rights of the people. And this is not a new practice. This has been going on for generations. And I think that that's what's really accurate about the closing um, sentence in Mr. Manahan's um, article where he says that it's ironic the same scenario is happening again. And there has been no role reversal here. This was preempted by the state of Maine. This is something that has consistently happened throughout history. Um, And uh, no one is reneging on a commitment that has been previously made because the, um, you know, the law clearly states that any rights that have not been alienated remain. That is a a well-accepted practice under both domestic and international law in regard to indigenous and aboriginal title rights. And so, um, you know, there has never been any commitment that has been made by anyone that the tribes did not have 
the rights to the waterways that surround them. And so, like I said, this is a complete legal fabrication by Mr. Manahan. Um, and it's a complete misrepresentation of the facts mm-hmm. um, of this case. And it's classic, it's textbook scenario of fear mongering and the dispensing of misinformation to try to confuse um, the populace. So I think it's, as Maria said, completely shameful and disgraceful and completely unethical for his Mm -hmm. position as an attorney. And the main bar should be right on top of that one. Well, Mm -hmm. you would think. I just wanted to uh, kind of piggyback something that Sherry was um, saying. It, It made me think about the 1818 Treaty, which is the treaty between the Penobscots and um, Massachusetts before Maine became a state in 1820. And this this 1818 Treaty had delineated our, our reservation, what we considered our reservation. And so that understanding of the 1818 Treaty has been sort of translated into the Maine Indian land claims as our um, understanding of our reservation. Um, but what's interesting to note is that the 1818 Treaty also had provisions within it for permission for Massachusetts to pass and repass on our river. That piece got left out of the main Indian land claims. I think that is very, very significant. So they're using a piece of the 1818 treaty, the piece that suits them just fine, but they forget to mention the piece that reserves the right for them to pass on our river. Right. And I think that there is so much historical precedent related to the connection. I mean, what is the name of the river that we're discussing? Penobscot. Penobscot, right? It's the Penobscot River. Mm-hmm. And the people are the are Penobscot. The nation is Penobscot. There is no way to distinguish when you use the language between the people their land base and the waterway. It's all Bunawebskik. It's all Penobscot. And so when we think about our connection to that land and to that waterway, um, we see that there is no distinction between the well-being of the people, the well-being of the waterway, and the well-being of that land. And all of that is connected to the health of the river. And we understand that just like if our blood gets poisoned, our whole body gets poisoned. If that river gets poisoned, then everyone that lives up and down that waterway is going to be contaminated by the toxins and impacted negatively in regard to their well-being um, by the role of industry in contaminating our waterways. You know, I find it interesting uh, that the Penobscot River, you know, is, is has our name. Well, here's this thing. You know, some people say, well, okay, uh, Bernard Webskig is really the uh, the real native name. Well, you know, if you look at Penobscot, that's what the English call us. So the English themselves recognize the connection Absolutely. between us and the, and the river. Right. So, you know, I think it's very um, obvious, mm-hmm. the relationship right. there. Absolutely. Um, so, is there anything you would like to say in closing, uh, Sherry? We've got a few minutes here. Yep. Yeah, I would just like to encourage people to really think about this, um, to really become critical thinkers and not to be influenced by, um, you know, these special interests. You know, not only is it special to the BDN, this is a special interest um, promotional 
um, statement that what is his underlying intent in trying to mislead the people? Where, where, where do his interests lie? And if you look at how he makes his living and who is um, subsidizing his life, um, it is industry. And it's industry that has been historically um, contaminating the Penobscot River. So, you know, not only does he have a vested interest in uh, maintaining their position because it's financing his life, but he also, um, you know, has a relationship with the tribes through the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission that has not been harmonious and that has not been favorable. And so I challenge people to really consider um, when they're looking at things like that to really dig deep and to look at what the interests are of those people who are promoting this misinformation. Hmm. Absolutely. Um, Maria? Well, um, I wanted to share with us in closing a um, a very brief poem by every time I hear this um, I think of tribal state relations Yeah, and I think we talked about this earlier Mm -hmm. and uh, and I've heard you mention this on another show and and I really really liked uh, what you were saying so I I really uh, look forward to actually hearing the whole little, is that a poem you're going to read? It's just very very brief yeah, it's um, very it's brief. So. Very brief. It's written by uh, Leo Tolstoy in the 1800s, and he did a lot of writing around the oppression of poor people. Mm-hmm. And um, it says, what then must we do? I sit on a man's back, choking him and making him carry me, and yet assure myself and others that I am sorry for him, and wish to lighten his load by all means possible, except by getting off his back. And every time I hear that, mm-hmm. that's, it makes me think of tribal state relations. Mm-hmm. Um, we make a few good steps forward, and then we take a couple of big steps back. And uh, unfortunately, I think this is one of those eras in which we're taking some steps back, unless people can um, educate themselves, be critical thinkers, and uh, understand that what's good for the Indians is good for everyone. That's right. And I think the difference now is we do have allies, and uh, they they do enhance uh, our voice. And thank you to them. Yes, thank you, our allies. We appreciate it. We really appreciate you. Yes. So, and thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring. And you've been listening to Webinecki Windows. I want to thank my guests, Sherry Mitchell and Maria Gerard, for being with us today. Tune in again next month for another Webinecki Windows. year in a row, WERU Community Radio will once again broadcast and stream online the American Folk Festival from the Bangor Waterfront this Saturday and Sunday from noon to 6 p.m. Coming to you live from the railroad stage this year, you'll hear wonderful live performances 